0: Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala. Today we are going to jump back into a series called 20 Questions, The Basics Every Christian Should Know, with a question, what is man? Obviously a huge theological question with enormous implications. So for a question such as this, we're bringing in the big guns, we're bringing in Chris Altrock, he's the Executive Preaching Minister here at Highland Church of Christ. And we've actually, as far as I know, never had Chris teach a class. You know, He preaches almost every Sunday here at Highland, but he's being kind enough and generous enough to come and teach for us, and we're uh, very excited about that. Um, so this, again, comes from a book on these 20 questions. They're theological questions, foundational questions, that all of us as Christians should have answers for. Uh, obviously, a question like, what is man, is, a, is again a very deep and difficult question, but obviously, again, it has enormous implications, a very important question to try and answer. So, let's seek to do that today, and let's go to Chris Altrock right now with, what is man?
1: You're high-tech, man. Wow. Okay. Yeah, let me unlock the screen here. There we go. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you guys. There's Bill right there. (laughs) Kathy did a marvelous job. Oh, she is good. Yeah, she's, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so thanks for the plug on the book. And I do have a copy of the book. Um, It's coming out. It's actually coming out this next week, which is a week early. So I'm really excited about it. It's on Esther. And I pulled 12 things out of the story of Esther, 12 ways in which... The narrative of Esther helps us to discern uh, what God's up to in our lives, especially when there are circumstances going on that make it difficult to see what, what God's up to in our lives. And so, um, yeah, there'll be a book signing on August 11th. So I'm super excited. No one else maybe, but I'm really excited about the book and hope, it'll, hope it will be a great resource. So what is man? What is man? Of all the questions asked in the book, this is the most important, okay, the most important. Actually, I think uh, it's our failure to properly answer this question that uh, lies at the root of some of the worst things in our society. So I think this is a critical, critical question, and I'm subtitling it here on being human and becoming human. So we're going to start here in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, The author says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've set in place, what is man? The word here is enosh, humanity. What is humanity? That you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor so pause we're going to come back to this and aside on the words used in our Bible for man or humans or people because what this question is about is not what is man what is who are males this is what is humanity okay in the Old Testament there are at least six words we're gonna just run through the six words for man several of them mean people in general so Adam is often used for people in general. Ish, more gender specific. Enosh, mankind in general. Geber, more gender specific. Metim can mean people, humanity, and, and arson, more gender specific. So a number of words in the Old Testament that refer to gender specific individuals and a number of words that refer to humanity. We're talking about humanity. Who, who are we as human beings? Same thing in the New Testament. The word anthropos can be used to refer to people. Aner uh, is more gender specific. Thnetos refers to people in general. Uh, psyche, the soul, life itself really, and then arson. So I, I don't want to dwell long on that just to say that when you see these words pop up in the Bible, sometimes they're really talking about humanity, which is the case here in Psalm 8 and verse four. The question being what is man, what is humanity? that you are mindful of him, the son of humanity, that you care for him. What is man? What is humanity? Who are we? So, let's just reflect for a moment. I want you to close your eyes, and if you're not holding someone or something, you might place your hands on your knees, get your feet flat on the floor, And take a big breath in and let it out take a big breath in and let it out and for a moment while you're paying attention to your breathing in and out just imagine for a moment sitting in the loving gaze of God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, however you want to imagine God. There's so many images of God in the Bible, so however you want to imagine God, imagine God at this moment staring down at you as you continue to breathe and relax in His presence, staring at you with love, the way a mother stares at a baby, the way that maybe you stare at your child, the way that someone you love and who loves you looks at you. Just sit for a moment, still breathing, sitting in the loving gaze of God. As you're sitting here in the loving gaze of God and you're trying to imagine what God sees as he looks at you. What is something that God sees about you that causes some humility as you think about yourself? What does God in his loving gaze see about you that causes some humility and silently acknowledge that part of you to God right now. Still breathing in and out, sitting in the loving gaze of God. Try to imagine now, as God looks at you, something that He sees about you that makes you feel glorious. What is that? And acknowledge that to God. And now open your eyes and let's say these words aloud together. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What am I that you are mindful of me, that you care for me? Yet you have made me a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned me with glory and honor. So turn to someone right now, And say this out loud. You may have to look at the words. I understand that. But say this to them out loud. God has made you a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned you with glory and honor. You can say it with enthusiasm if you'd like. Go ahead and do that. (laughs) Okay, so, so how does it feel to receive those words? And uh, how does it feel to, to give those words, to receive someone saying, God has made you a little lower than the heavenly beings. He's crowned you with glory and honor. Uh, and how does it feel to receive those words?
0: Feels good. Mm-hmm. It's easier to say it than receive
1: it. It's easier to say it to someone else about them than it is to receive, okay. What else? How does it feel to receive those words? How does it feel to give those words? It feels hard to feel deserving of glory. Mm. So
0: we, don't, we don't typically think of glory for ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But you asked us to think about the, the things that would make us feel humility, and so when somebody says those words to me, the first thing I think of is the things that make me feel humility, and think, "Oh, I'm glad they
1: don't see that." Hmm. Yeah. Right. So there are things we see about ourselves. There's things that God sees about ourselves that we're sort of thankful that no one else sees. So when we talk about this question, what is man? What, what is humanity? And, and the Bible introduces it here in Psalm 8. Uh, th- these are the kinds of things that play out. There are things about us, the author is saying, there are things about us that uh, yeah, we'd like to keep a little hidden, right? <clears throat> or we'd like to put on an image. we we'll are talk about that. We'll, we'd like to put on an image that's a little different than the way that we see ourselves because we're, we're not so uh, thrilled about who we are as humans. And, and then there are these other things that when God looks at us, he sees, he sees things about us and all humans that are glorious. And, and we're a little reluctant to uh, accept that, to receive that. And yet that's what it means to be human so let's talk about what is it that makes a human a human what makes us all every single one of us every single person on the planet a human so i'm going to go I'm going to use three uh, illustrations here from contemporary culture some of these uh, may make you uncomfortable and and that's okay that's why I'm here okay uh, we're trying to wrestle with what it Really means to be human, and and what it doesn't mean to be human. Okay, so uh, we'll start here with this book by Mark O'Brien. Notice the title: "How I Became What," a human being. How I Became a Human Being. So when he's six years old, uh, back in the fifties, Mark contracts polio, and he becomes paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, they put him in an iron lung, and he basically lives. Uh, much of his life in that iron lung, unable to uh, really interact with people very well, unable to move his limbs very well, Uh, not a productive member of society, right? And of course, this is back in the 1950s um, when uh, discrimination against someone like him would would be perhaps even more um, pronounced than it is today. So he writes this book about his experience of from six years old being in that iron lung and struggling with uh, not feeling like a human. So notice notice this quote here in the book where thankfully he's moved into a season of life where things are getting a little better for him. So he says people began to treat me as if I were a human being. It's strange to tell because up until then people had made me feel as if I were something else, something less something not capable of bearing personal responsibility because this society has by unspoken agreement defined a human being as someone who can bear the major responsibilities required for a self-directed life I was not a human being nor are convicts children retarded people it's not the language we use today it's his language regarded as such but now that I've been given this responsibility and have proven that I can run my life as well as anybody else I've been granted that degree of respect which is commonly accorded to a human being when one of my attendants referred to me as buddy it thrilled me because I would not been accustomed to receiving that degree of respect such respect came as something of a surprise so that line there in in the book people made me feel as if I were something else something less. I was not a human being. So just with that one little quote there, with that one little uh, synopsis of his own story, how, how do you think that that Mark and and the people around Mark, how did they define what it means to be human? Being independently responsible for yourself. Okay, so to be human you you had to be at least in in that circle. You had to be independently responsible for yourself. And if you weren't, then you weren't human, or at least you weren't treated as human, right? Uh, what else? What what would they have said? Yeah, this is what makes a a human. Not a burden. Not a not a burden. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anything else come to mind? You have to be respected. Hmm. Okay. So uh, you're not worthy of, or at least not receiving respect from other people. Yeah, it's kind of interesting and in, in introduces this diagram that I'll use uh, throughout the rest of our time here. Uh, there's, there's a sense in which for a long time in our society and our culture, if you have certain qualities or characteristics, then you're considered human. And if you don't, then either you're less human or you're, you're not human so in this story if you're independent if you're able-bodied yeah you're fully human uh, but if, if you have disabilities you're, you're not so much and then then he himself mentions if uh, con- he placed himself in the same categories convicts and uh, children you know which is like what really but in his mind that was true in that time and at that in that culture if you were a, an adult, able-bodied an adult, then you were human, right? And if you were not, then, then you were either less human or you were not human at all. Okay, um, Ibrahim Kendi has this book called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And the, the title of the book is very important. So here's, here's how he uh, explains the title. The title, Stamped from the Beginning, comes from a speech that Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis gave on the floor of the US Senate in 1860. The future president of the Confederacy objected to a bill funding black education in Washington. And here's here's what he said, this government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men, for white men. The bill was based on the false notion of racial equality, he declared, and inequality the inequality of white and black races, he said, was stamped from the beginning. Okay, so just a very brief quote there out of out of this book, but based on that, what do you think Davis would say? Or the people around Davis would say about, what, what is it that makes a, a human a human? Who, who are the humans in our culture and, and, well, who are not? What would he say? White people. Okay, white people, so there's, so there's race, yeah, mm-hmm. And men, right? Right? White men. This is a society for white men. Sorry. Everybody else. So yeah. If you're if you're especially if you're male and, and you're white, then then you're you're human. He doesn't use that language, but clearly that's what's being intended here. And then if you're a person, male or female of color, then maybe not so much. So we're just trying to look at some of the ways in which our own culture uh, is answering this question. So one more example here. So in the 1980s, a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw uh, reviewed a number of legal cases. And uh, she determined through that review that black women, black women were were particularly being discriminated against. And uh, there was was no real structure in the legal system for uh, dealing with that because uh, black women were were basically ignored within the legal system. So you have two things going on here, race and and gender. So she described the way that a black woman uh, might be standing at the intersection of of two things, and I'll, I'll put a diagram up here in a minute, of sexism and racism, and that they couldn't be helped legally or socially because they were in kind of a blind spot. The legal system really hadn't come to address that the specific company that she was looking at there were women being hired by the company but they were white women there were african-americans being hired but they were men and so black women uh, she said stood at this sort of intersection where it was particularly difficult for them intersection of race and and sex and so she coined this term intersectionality to talk about that particular uh, difficulty here so so if you if you were white in this particular workplace then then things were pretty good for you if you were male in this particular workplace then things are pretty good for you uh, it, but if you were female not as much if you were black not as much and then here at the intersection right here it was particularly difficult this particularly uh, this group of people black females were being the most discriminated against uh, in this particular workplace, and she calls that intersectionality, where where an individual or a group of people have a number of uh, factors that cause them to be treated in particularly poor ways. So uh, initially, as Crenshaw was working on this, it was mostly in that one case about race and gender, but ever since she wrote about it, it's come to be applied to other categories of people, so there's sexual orientation, there's nationality, Uh, There's class, socioeconomic class, uh, and and disability, just like uh, Mark O'Brien there, uh, with the understanding that you have all those factors uh, at play in any one individual's life and experience. And uh, many times, the more of those factors that they're experiencing, the more intersections that they're standing at, the more poorly they're being treated in our society. Does that make sense? Okay, there's like tons and tons of books on this, so we're just taking a very small look. At it here but so do you see all the issues that are being raised by her and her, her research about humanity so it's not just about uh, race it's not just about gender it's about all these other things as well class and and um, ability and, and sexual orientation and, and things like that so the, so the question that gets raised in that research then is this how do we define what a human is is it a particular race? Is it a particular gender? Is it a particular sexual orientation? Is it a particular nationality? Is it a particular socioeconomic class? Uh, is it a p- particular disability or, or, uh, or non-disability? Because again and again, uh, certain individuals who have a number of these qualities and experiences somehow get treated less human and, and others get treated as, as more human so it's a really critical question right so what is what is a human what does it mean to be to be human again you know if, if you're white and you're straight and you're american and you're male you're sort of at the top there yeah sure you're human if you're a person of color or a member of the lgbtq community or you're foreign or you're female less so so we, we have all these factors at play in in our society Today, all really circling around this question what is a human? What does it mean to be human? And, and it's really the failure to acknowledge the humanity, the humanity of all people and, and of ourselves, that leads to the hurtful and hateful treatment of, of other people and the hurtful and hate, hateful treatment of ourselves. It's what it lies at the root of racism, classism, sexism, oppression, violence. And, and self-hatred. It's, it's the, the lack of understanding. I'm a human. You're a human. Every person on this planet is a human that leads to all these things. So this question is so critical and so connected to the gospel. Let's jump into the New Testament here. So one text here, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul takes up these three categories of people in his own culture. You got race, you're either Jew or Gentile. You got gender, you're either male or female. And then you've got class, you're either free or you're slave. And so if, if you're, from Paul's perspective and his culture, if you're Jewish, things are going pretty well for you and, and your humanity is pretty high. If you're Gentile, it's, it's a little lower, right? If you're male, things are going pretty well for you. If you're female, a little less so. If you're free, you're not enslaved, then, then things are going well for you. If you're, if you're enslaved, then not so much. So even, even in the New Testament area, this echo is being heard here in Galatians 3 and verse 28. And again, with this diagram here, that you've got these two large categories, Jew and Gentile. If you're a Jew, humanity's... Pretty well taken care of. If you're Gentile, you're seen and treated as, as less than human. And then within those two categories, you have a number of factors that are that are playing out, gender and uh, class. Here in Galatians 3, verse 28, and Paul acknowledges here in Galatians 3, verse 28, that Jesus Christ, one of the things that he did on the cross through his death, the gift of his blood and his life, is to bring back. People who have been divided for so long by these categories. So, this is where we want to get to Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. So God said, let us make man, Adam, humanity. Let's make humanity in our own image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, livestock over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So a couple of quotes here, one uh, from a book called In His Image by Paul Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. The word image, they write, is familiar to us today, but the meaning of the word is leaked away, so it now connotes virtually the opposite of its former meaning of likeness. Today, a politician hires an image maker. A job applicant dresses for Image. A corporation seeks the right image. In all these usages, images come to mean the illusion of what something is presented to be rather than the essence of what it really is. Right, so don't we tend to use the word image in that way today? Projecting an image or uh, conscious of our image. It's really kind of a negative word today. And that's not how the author of Genesis is using the word. Instead, image here is a word that refers to our truest self. Who, who we truly are, no matter how anybody else treats us, no matter how we treat ourselves, image refers to our, our core essence. Who we truly are in and of ourself, not, not some false image that we're projecting or that others are projecting on ourself. So Thomas Schreiner here, writing about this, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. If we pay attention to this text, he says, the focus is on human beings as vice-regents of creation. What what does that mean, vice regents of creation? What's that mean to you? What's that? Like like rulers of some sort. Yeah, right. Yeah, so so we're ruling with God. So God's the what king? If He's the king, what does that make us? Yeah, princes and princesses, kings and queens under Him. I mean, we're, we're royalty. We're ruling the world with God. That's what He's saying here. We read the mandate for human beings in 128, be fruitful and multiply, etc. Human beings are made in the image of God and that they are to rule the world for God. The regal nature of the image is confirmed by the use of images in the ancient Near East where a ruler's image was set up in distant parts of his kingdom to indicate that his authority reached there. So we know that in the ancient world, kings who would have a massive kingdom, they, you know, they couldn't be everywhere at the same time. So they would, they would set out these physical statues, monuments, that were their image, that that indicated, hey, this is part of my kingdom. This is part of my rule here. And so along comes God, and uh, what does God rule over? Everything, right? Yeah, the whole world. And uh, so rather than placing statues or monuments or something like that around the world, saying this is God's, this is God's, this is God's, what does he do? He places you and I all over the world as his image to say, this is where I'm ruling, and this is where I'm ruling, and, and these are the folks that are helping me expand my rule around the world. It's pretty neat stuff. It says, uh, certainly other elements of the divine image are implied by the mandate to rule, but the biblical text calls attention to human beings as those having the responsibility and privilege of subduing the world for God. As Stephen Dempster says, the male and female as king and queen of creation are to exercise rule over their dominion, the extent of which is the entire earth. Peter gently rightly argues, the image of God is not functional here, rather it's ontological, for human beings are in the image of God. So I want to pull three things out of this this Shriner quote here, okay? So number one, male and female are king and queen of creation. That's awesome. Number two, male and female rule the world. Who? For who? Not for ourselves right but but for God and so that that presents that prevents the the selfish use of power the the hurtful use of power we're we're ruling for God not for ourselves and then the third thing that Shriner says here is that those qualities the, the fact that you are a king or queen ruling the world for God that he says is not just ontological it's functional so words we never use at all in conversation after today you will right so the word ontological means something that you have no matter what. No matter, no matter what happens to you, uh, no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter what you can or can't do. If it's ontological, it means you got it. You've had it since birth. You'll have it forever. It's just part of who you are. It's part of your even deeper than your DNA. So, so the fact that you are a king or queen, you've been made to rule, you have that doesn't matter what else you have or, or do not have. It doesn't matter what you can do or cannot do. It's ontological. It's in your very being. It's in the very being of every single living person on this planet, no matter what they can do or can't do, no matter their gender, their sexual orientation, their class, their race, their nationality. It's in them. Functional refers to the way that we live that out the way that we behave because of who we are. Our identity is made in the image of God, king and queen with God over creation. Functional means, okay, that's gonna have some implications for how we behave, how we treat one another, how we treat the earth, what we do with our lives, living our lives with purpose. Does that distinction make, make sense? Ontological, functional there? Okay, so, Let's say these three things out loud. Ready? Number one, I am a king or women. I am a. There we go. Number two, I rule the world for God. And number three, this isn't just something I do, it is something I am. Okay? So turn to somebody right now and tell them those three things, okay? Okay, so, so how, do, how does it feel to receive that for somebody to look at you and say, you're a king, you rule. I've been waiting so, so long. Yes, finally. I'm surprised that hasn't happened until now.
0: <laughs> yeah, <you're right. laughs> I'll talk to her that this morning.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> we're, we're not used to talking to other people in that way, right? I mean this kind of exalted language? Uh, How does it feel to receive that? uh, To to give it, I mean, to give it. How does it feel to give that? To to tell someone, you're a king, you're a queen, you rule for God. What does that feel like?
0: It's (laughs) Great. Feels good. We're so used to tearing other people down. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's it's C.S. Lewis that talks about how pride requires that we are always in this sort of Competition to tear down others so that we feel exalted. Yeah. You know, so I, I think it's, it feels different, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so often the case, the only way for us to feel better about ourselves is to make other people feel worse.
0: I think we're used to telling, like, our spouses or our friends and family some of these things, but I think it's even, I guess, more powerful to think of saying that to
1: someone that maybe we don't agree with. Yeah. Or
0: someone that right.
1: we, view in a different
0: kind of social space than we
1: are right yeah so yeah it's, it's pretty easy to do that especially for the person who's next to you, you probably have some uh, relationship with them pretty easy to do that right here in this classroom with folks that are you know in similar phases of life uh, fairly easy to do it right here at Highland but um, you know what about the rest of the world what about stepping out of here and and living out of that that truth every single person I interact with every per, every single group I interact with kings and queens made to rule with God it's who they are it has nothing to do with with what they do so so there's a being element here right so humanity being made in the image of God the likeness of God being made royalty being made to rule part of his kingdom that's in our being and it's in the being of every single person and that that beingness remains no matter what else is present or absent age doesn't diminish it or enhance it neither does race nor class nor sexual orientation nor ability it's just something that has been stamped in us every single person from the beginning every single person and there's also a becoming element to this so Humanity is part of our becoming. We have this intrinsic, built-in identity as humans made in the image of God. And we're also growing more and more into our humanity. We're, we're ever and more living out our identity. Once we understand who we are, who every single person on the planet is, we spend the rest of our lives trying to find out what it means to live that out, to live that identity out so here's where Jesus comes in because one of the things that Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1 is he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And probably what he means by that is he is the fullest uh, expression of what it means to live out the identity of one who's made in the image of God. If, If we want to see what Full humanity looks like, we look at Jesus. He is the one who's perfectly lived out his full potential as one who's made in the image of God. And so for the rest of our lives, we strive to get there. We strive to, to be that kind of human. All the while, knowing we are human. We are made in the image of God. And every single person is as well. All right, quickly. Genesis 9, verse 6, because this is another place where it comes up in uh, Genesis. So we have this command here. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So why can't we hurt other people according to this text? Or
0: murdering God's creation or in a way our, our own
1: image. Yeah. Yeah, so the fact that I'm made in the image and the fact that the person I want to hurt is made in the image prevents me from treating them in an unkind way. It's all rooted in our common humanity, right? Our common uh, imaging of God. If I truly realize the humanity of the person before me and my own humanity, I cannot hurt them because that violates this imaging ability. So uh, Walter Brueggemann, real quick, in this post-flood decree of creation, the sanctity of human life is established against every ideology and every force that would cheapen or diminish life. God deems himself violated in the violation of these persons. So it's, it's not just the sanctity of humanity being made in the image of God, but because as image bearers, we are bearing the image of God. When I hurt another person, I'm harming God. I'm, when I violate another human, I'm violating God himself because they too are made in the image of God. So recognizing this, that, that every person, including myself, that we're intrinsically imaging God eliminates violence, superiority, hatred, hurt toward every other person, including myself. I have to see myself as human as well and treat myself as one made in the image of God. And so we go back to all these qualities here that within our culture and our history have so often been the defining characteristic of what is meant as fully human. And what Genesis does is it goes uh, beneath all of those. And so uh, to say that only a particular race or a particular gender or a particular sexual orientation or nationality or class or disabilities is somehow more human and another is somehow less human is a direct contradiction of the truth that we've all been made in the image of God, all kings and queens, all made to rule the world with God. And it radically changes the way that we Interact with one another. Interesting, this just came across my Twitter feed yesterday, and uh, just an interesting use of this, this ethic within our culture itself. So, you know, there's a lot of debate going on within our government about uh, how people are being treated at the border, and there were these uh, hearings that were going on with uh, DHS. And the, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee uh, said this, responded uh, in this way: said, What does that mean when a child is sitting in their own feces? or can't take a shower. Come on, man. He said, none of us would have our children in that position. They are, what does he say? Human beings. Human beings. beings. Now, I don't know his faith commitment. Uh, I don't know if he, he means exactly what we think of when we think of human beings. But what he's saying there is what Genesis 6 is saying. That the way we treat other people must be humane. It must be based on the fact that we share a common humanity. And in the, in the Judeo-Christian world, that means every person around us is a king or queen, made to rule the world with God and for God. And so it radically, radically impacts our lives. Okay, so we're going to close with this. I'd really encourage you to uh, think about these three questions, reflect on these three questions this week. So what, what would change in your own self-perception? And the way you treat yourself. If if you said to yourself every morning, you know, and you believed wholeheartedly in it, I'm a human. I'm made in the image of God. I'm a king. I'm a queen. Because uh, so many of us treat ourselves terribly, because we don't see ourselves in this light. So, what about you? What would change? What would change, number two, in your perception of and your treatment of other people? If every time you went into an inter- interaction, you said, you, you don't have to say it out loud, they might think you're really weird. But you said, you know, internally, you're human. This person right here that I'm looking at, or this group of people that's being discussed, they're human. How would that change your uh, perception of them, your, your treatment of them? And then, uh, number three, extending out of all that, what would it mean for you to to fully live out your identity as a human? You know, so often uh, we use the word human in a way that's negative. I'm just human. I'm only human, right? But I think the Bible wants us to reclaim that and say, yeah, I am human. And so it's the fact that I'm human is going to have implications for the way that I do everything that I do. My whole purpose in life becomes defined by the fact that I am human human, an image-bearer of God. So, what would change in your life? What would it mean to more fully live out your identity as a human? We'll stop right there. You want to close it out?
0: Thank you. You're giving me that phone. I'll push pause on it. not your phone. It's great. Okay, so I want to thank Chris Altrock for doing a wonderful job with this topic. We were just speaking briefly after class, and I think it goes without saying, when you have a topic like, What is Man?, It's impossible to cover everything so I think a good dovetail next week will be a conversation on what is sin because obviously uh, we accept that all men, all women, regardless of category uh, are created in the image of God. Obviously there's a process (laughs) by which many of us seek to obscure that image and hide that image and do everything we can to snuff out that image. Um, and so uh, I think that's where the conversation of sin comes in. And another conversation uh, on sanctification and, and the direction that we can go where we seek to be more and more like Christ and the image of Him and the image of God. Oh, uh, man, so many, so many other conversations to be had. Hopefully this is good uh, you know, lunchtime fodder for you this Sunday uh, when you're talking with your friends, with your family. I think that it's truly the the mistake of defining what it means to be human that leads to a lot of issues. Chris said that, but I, I think unless we define humanity what it means to be human correctly, everything that follows is going to be wrong. So if we identify our humanity our identity as something different from being made in the image of God, I think it can drastically change the way that we make determinations down the road. And so if I, if I identify you know, in, it, in, in my infancy or in my foundation as a white male American, it's really going to change the way that I see the world and that I make decisions and then I decide who is valuable and who is not valuable. So, uh, just a, a really, really important conversation and one that I wish that I wish rather uh, that we all spend more time with. So, I hope you got something out of today. Again, I want to thank Chris Altrock for spending time with us this morning. It was a, it was a real um, pleasure to be in the audience, and we'll be back next week with, again, a conversation on what is sin if you're in the Memphis area, and it's a Sunday, and it's 10 a.m., and you want to do something come, spend time with us, we have a class called Bridge Builders, we would love to spend Sunday together with you with that, I will leave you, this is Kyle Fagula again, I want to appreciate or I want to thank you, rather, uh, for tuning in and I appreciate you for choosing to do that we will see you next week on the Highland Bridge Builders podcast thank you, and God bless